Today, I'm asking an uncomfortable question. Is the formidable cost of demining, inch by inch, field by field, greater or lesser than the benefit? From a humanitarian perspective, there is obviously no contest. A human life is worth every penny necessary to preserve it. But with a limited number of aid dollars to spread around, and a continuously growing number of crises and projects to spend them on, how do we evaluate the economic benefit of demining and find ways to make it more efficient? Hello, and welcome to the third episode of The Diffuser. My guest today is development economist Ted Patterson. Ted has worked in international development for many years with Canadian NGOs, the North-South Institute, and as an independent consultant. He began working on Mine Action in 2000, and after 10 years heading the Policy Research and Evaluation section of the Geneva International Centre for Humanitarian Demining, returned to Canada in 2014. He now works as a consultant focusing on how Mine Action relates to broader development and humanitarian and peace-building programs. Well, hey, Ted, and thanks for coming on The Diffuser. Well, uh, thanks very much for having me. So I want to talk to you today about three key areas. Uh, first, I'm interested in the economics of the mining. Yeah. Uh, besides the fact that landmines are dangerous and indiscriminate, uh, I also want to ask kind of why we should spend scarce ad, uh, sorry, scarce aid dollars, both as private individuals and also as governments, on demining work. Second, I want to talk about 2025 goal for global landmine eradication. And third, I want to talk about Canada's record on mine action. So are you mm. ready for that? Sure. Shoot, as they say. Well, first of all, uh, demine economics. Uh, demining is slow, dangerous, and expensive work. So how do the benefits outweigh the cost of demining? I know that you've written on Cambodia in the past, and so why don't you kind of use Cambodia as a case example for explaining why demining is a very positive way to, say, increase life expectancy and agricultural production and just overall quality of life in countries that have a significant demining contamination. Uh, if I could, before I turn to uh, the case of Cambodia, give you a little bit of back background on on um, what I refer to as um, the dismal science meets a global atrocity, sort of the economics of, of mine action. Um, my first assignment in mine action was commissioned in 1999, and, and we had a meeting in... Uh, Washington, D.C., the week of the meeting, um, the first ever academic publication on uh, cost-benefit analysis of demining came out, and the case was Cambodia. Anyway, and it found that um, net benefit of demining Cambodia was minus $3 billion. Wow. Wow. So we were faced with, uh, well, this, we're working on the socioeconomics and already somebody's come out and, and found this case uh, in Cambodia. In fact, the, the article was laughably flawed. 
just in terms of the the uh, economic analysis of underlying flawed data, the economic analysis itself was wrong. So he basically overstated the costs in uh, present value terms, if if that means some anything to anybody, but by something like eleven hundred percent. So eleven times, eleven times, and it was it was really not not very useful. But it was doing a lot of damage uh, in terms of of donors. The you know not that many donors would. Be aware of something in in something in a journal of development economics, but it is a well-known journal, and it it the, the economists uh, in the donor agencies were raising questions: Why on earth would we support this? Explain to me for a second here what a net benefit of negative three billion actually means to the common layperson. Like, how does that actually include? Yeah, it was. Uh, Basically, the, the, he estimated it would cost 30 million U.S. dollars a year for 20 years. And then uh, the, on the benefit side, he looked at agricultural productivity. Um, he used the wrong figure and didn't allow for any economic growth in Cambodia after – you know, as they were recovering from from the, their horrible conflict, so that was a bit dodgy, and he allowed for um, the cost of treating um, people. Now we didn't know how many people were actually being injured by landmines, how many were actually getting to uh, uh, getting to be treated, and how effectively that. They were treated. We didn't know any of that, but he just he came with a very low value of of life of of uh, basically just the production agricultural production that they would lose over over twenty years. So so the net benefit is is the cost minus the benefit. So or the benefit minus the cost, sorry. And and uh, he did that calculation based on the numbers he came up with, and he came up with minus 2.9 billion US dollars or something like that. However, he, he had what is called discounted, the future value of economic benefits. He discounted the benefits, but he forgot to discount the costs. So $30 million dollars, uh, in today's dollars is worth a lot more than $30 million in, you know, 20 years from now in 2019. So we got the, the economic calculations, the mere manipulations entirely wrong. And so the report that you put out with your colleagues was taking note of these discrepancies that you believed were in the original report. Yeah, I wrote a commentary which was published in this academic journal of development economics. And we also put out uh, something, a joint publication, UNDP and uh, Geneva International Center for Humanitarian Demining called Socioeconomic Approaches to Mine Action. In that, I also did sort of what I consider the first proper cost-benefit analysis of a mine action program, and I used Laos, uh, and to a lesser extent, Mozambique. So uh, 
based on my analysis, it seemed that much of the demining was uh, delivered a net benefit, uh, even in very narrow terms, not taking in a, into account the value of a human life and that type of thing. So, um, in fact, mine action seems to be a worthwhile investment, uh, development investment in many, perhaps the majority of cases. Um, and that this this work has been done in many places, Afghanistan, Yemen, Mozambique, uh, Colombia, Cambodia, uh, you know, many countries. And the results are often, are, are always pretty positive. So it's, um, it's not a bad investment. Of course, laying the laying the, the minefields imposes a huge cost on a country. But once those minefields are laid, the question is, well, should we spend scarce dollars to, to clean them up? And the answer, uh, even from a very narrow economic perspective, is often yes. So what are the greatest benefits economically to uh, demining these minefields? Yeah, in, in any calculation, the, the benefit typically the, the is, is um, uh, pr- productivity of the land, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, but there's basically there's, there's four general benefits um, that underpin any demining. Uh, first, saving lives and limbs. Um, secondly, enhancing material prosperity, sort of investments to, to increase uh, gross domestic product, however you measure the economy. Thirdly, uh, reducing poverty, which is sort of investments not, not for general economic growth, but, but to bring up particularly disadvantaged people. Um, uh, more targeted at, at that type of thing. A lot of in development world livelihoods um, work is is based on that. And the fourth general uh, goal is meeting international obligations, whether the the uh, mine ban treaty, uh, the cluster munition treaty, or the the convention on on certain conventional weapons. You know, almost all countries of the world are have some obligations, international legal obligations, with respect to cleaning up uh, landmines and other explosive devices. So those those are the four general types. Now, um, usually enhancing material pro- um, prosperity, sort of promoting growth, generates the the largest uh, benefits. Um, but, uh, not, not invariably, but uh, generally the, the first three of the, um, these underlying objectives that, that we have in, in promoting, um, demining really relate to the geographic location. So the specific benefits depend on how, close the minefield is to, you know, a village or a road or, or, or water for agriculture um, and uh, how dangerous it is. Is it close to paths or does it block assets that people need? 
that type of thing. It's uh, they're derived pretty much from the geographic location. So it varies as you know the the answers vary as much as as the geography varies. That's really interesting. Like I I, I find this topic fascinating in some ways because first of all, I'm getting a lesson in economics, obviously, which I haven't considered before, but also because the arguments often for demining that were put forward uh, from the ICBL campaign of the 90s onward have been usually on a humanitarian and human rights grounds. Right. So demining, obviously, or uh, landmines are horrendous, they're indiscriminate, they're dangerous, they do tremendous violence to women and children, and that's why they should be removed. How do you reconcile in some ways those two halves of the, the demining coin or the two different arguments that are put forward for the same purpose? Yeah, well... Uh, I guess there's a, a few reasons. One is that although one is this is this uh, whole issue of of valuing a human life, which which some people feel distasteful, you know, inherently distasteful, and so they just don't want to talk about it. And um, even for those who don't find it inherently distasteful, is it's some something like I would say it's important to know you know or at least order of magnitude um, how how valuable uh, people uh, the values people place on their lives in order to make appropriate decisions on on behalf or alongside those people um, there's a problem with uh, demining for human safety because we've never discovered a way of predicting how many accidents will occur in future on a minefield, right? So we can track how many there were in this minefield in the past, although even that tracking, you know, just after a conflict or something like that, the data are, are incomplete, often inaccurate. So it, it's hard to quantify how much additional safety you're buying when you clear a, a particular minefield. So when you, you know, basically when you want to operationalize this humanitarian imperative, you have a certain budget for the year, a certain number of assets, you have to decide well, what are our priorities? You know, which minefields are we going to clear first? In a place like Cambodia, you've got, you know, at least a 20 or 30 year job ahead of you. Which ones do we do first? So this kind of economic analysis is used in order to, as an input into the prioritization uh, decisions to point out what type of, of land should be cleared first to bring the greatest benefit um, to the to the local people, right? So it's not it's not because we want to turn it into primarily an economic issue. We do the economic analysis in order to inform national authorities and operators about priorities. That makes a lot of sense to me. Wow. I never quite thought about uh, how landmine fields were chosen to be demined and what order they should be demined in. Yeah, it's, there's been a lot of work on that in mine action. And we do a, uh, we've done a pretty good job, much better job than in, in the early days. Yeah. And I noticed that you've also written a report, I believe, in 2008, which kind of talks about the Cambodian mine action strategy going forward. And their, yeah. I think, 2009 
uh, application for an extension of their landmine eradication deadline. Mm -hmm. We can talk about that a bit in a second, but I also wanted to move on a little bit to uh, you and your experience with Canada. Now, Canada obviously was heavily involved in the landmine eradication or movement. The Ottawa process was obviously carried out in Canada. The Ottawa Treaty was signed in Canada. And you, over the last couple of years, have been a pretty significant advocate for Canada refocusing some international aid as well as some policy upon landmine eradication around the world. You've written some op-eds. You've been a prominent speaker on the subject. Uh, what's kind of your opinion on Canada's commitment to mine action, both historically as well as in the more contemporary setting? Can you talk a bit about areas where we could be improving as a nation and our commitment to this historic issue? Yeah. Well, just uh, for the record, I mean, uh, Canada was, was uh, I think, a very good and responsible um, donor and state's party to the, to the Ottawa Convention. And then the financial crisis hit, and the Canadian government, which happened to be a conservative government at the time, uh, sort of stopped all sort of non-essential expenditures. In and one of the things that was hit very hard was was expenditures um, in support of uh, the Ottawa Convention. So Canadian support fell, I think about 85% from its peak, you know, something like in U.S. dollars, like $40 million a year um, to uh, under $5 million a year. So a a huge, uh, dramatic and rapid collapse in support. Uh, But just as importantly, it didn't issue any new strategy and it broke up these groups uh, in CETA, Foreign Affairs, and um, Ministry of Defense that were focusing on uh, implementing Canadian landmine policy, mine action policy. So it sort of dissipated the the expertise within the, the public service. Now, um, since the new government uh, came in in what was it, 2016 or 2015? Um, and there were consultations on a Canadian foreign aid policy and, and all of that type type of stuff. I did some some homework and and put in a submission on on the history of Canadian support to the Ottawa Convention and uh, the dismal response in in recent years. Um, and that, uh, unfortunately, did not did not get um, uh, any action. You'll never meet anyone who's against supporting mine action, but there, you know, the the absence of a strategy, the absence of a uh, of a group of public servants who are working on the issue and are, uh, you know, become truly expert uh, with experience means that there's not much internal push when when decisions come up uh, at every level. Now, the other troubling aspect is if you look at um, donor funding for mine action internationally, it's been uh, remarkably constant um, 
over many years at about, you know, just, just under $500 million a year U.S. when you add it all up. But in recent years, support from member states of the Mine Ban Treaty has been far weaker than support from, say, the United States. And Canada, I think, should be concerned um, the fact that a, a largely made-in-Canada in treaty, international obligation, is flagging and it's showing little or no leadership to uh, bolster support. And I actually did want to ask you about that. Um, Prince Harry, obviously, in 2017, also announced a 2025 goal for the complete eradication of landmines worldwide. That was based upon the 20th anniversary of his mother, Prince Diana's trip to Angola, I believe, with yep. Halo or Mag or some yep. of the charities. Halo Trust. Yeah, they Halo visited Trust, yes. Halo Trust minefield. Yep. And I wanted to ask you, as an economist, if you think that goal is feasible, considering the flagging support from some countries like Canada. I mean, the use of landmines now in Myanmar and Iraq, and also in, uh, I guess, some other, I guess, with with ISIS in the Middle East. So I did want to kind of get your opinion on whether, economically, there is a path forward still to a 2025 goal and how that could be accomplished. Yeah. Well, the um, the current rate of support is simply inadequate to to meet the goal by 2025. Even for um, uh, affected countries, only those affected countries which are are uh, states parties to the convention. You know, even even um, you know neglecting the issue of of new uh, mining. Um, in, a, in a few countries. I mean, the, let's face it, the treaty has been enormously successful in reducing the, uh, the prevalence of the use of anti-personnel landmines. It's been enormously successful. Yeah, um, so there are, there are a few places where it pops up again, but there's a lot of international outrage going along with that. So, so it, uh, it, it, it certainly is nowhere near what it, it used to be in the bad old days before, say, 1995. Um, but, you know, international support, financial support is one way of measuring that, is, is simply inadequate to achieve clearance of all the known legacy minefields in place like, places like Cambodia uh, and Afghanistan and Angola. Um, and that's very troubling. Uh, you know, I know, I guess of those, I know actually Afghanistan the best. Um, they have a, a, a tremendously good mine action program. It is probably the most successful component of uh, the public sector in Afghanistan. It works when everything else doesn't. It works in air contested areas. It works in areas under control of the Taliban in some cases. And it's productive. It's cost effective. Um, it, it's tremendously professional. And the level of support to them is simply inadequate. Um, but this is Afghan run, Afghan owned now. Uh, but it's a very poor country, and and demining even when it's a good, it delivers good 
returns even in narrow economic terms. The, the Afghanistan's fighting a war. They can't. They don't have the money to to clear up all their landmines. There, but there's so the the funding support is not adequate to meet that goal. However, the economic analysis is actually pretty positive. And to explain that, I'll go back to um, you know this fourth general objective of any demining is meeting international obligations. Now, um, once you factor that in, as um, a country, uh, an affected country, let's take Mozambique, which which was the first of the very heavily uh, mined countries to to achieve completion. As they come close to completion, in fact, they get greater donor support. And there's also greater local government commitment. They, they really get collectively the act together. Um, and this isn't that surprising. Uh, uh, psychologists call it a goal gradient. Even, you know, even hamsters on a wheel, when they get close to the end, they run faster. <laughs> you know, it's it's a very deep set psychological response to coming close to the end of something. Um, there's one other complication I would add and illustrate with, with Afghanistan. About half of the remaining mined areas are on the tops of mountains or other completely inaccessible areas. And because the Russians, these are, these are Russian mines, used to dump them out of planes and helicopters and, you know, they, um, they were into filling, fulfilling their five-year uh, plan for for dropping landmines. They didn't really care whether they, where they fell. You know, it was that that kind of uh, dynamic going on. So, according to the Ottawa Convention, those are because they're known mined areas. There's an obligation to clear clear them. Um, and you can't complete without meeting that obligation. That's, it's hard to ask, you know, the government of Afghanistan and its donors to spend scarce dollars on clearing uh, the tops of, of uh, mountains that pose no foreseeable risk to any human being. Yeah, it's easier to so, put up a sign or some red tape and say you just don't go over this area, and obviously it's yeah. not going to. So if if we go back and think, well, you know, why is the mine ban treaty there? It's to protect protect innocent civilians from anti personnel landmines. If there are anti personnel landmines that everybody getting around can agree, well, that poses no risk to uh, any civilian anywhere. You don't have to do that and you can still meet your obligations uh, and complete demining of all known mind actions. So, so I categorize that as is, it's principled, but it's also practical 
in saying, well, if there are some minefields that don't pose a risk to any civilians, then uh, we don't have to clear them, at least not today. And we would only clear them if and when they did pose uh, a risk to civilians. So I think if we bring in that kind of thinking, we could, with some increase in funding, we could then uh, achieve uh, the 2025 goal. I would say it meets the underlying value that that uh, the 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 treaty was was based on, and the Ottawa process sought to uh, sought to achieve. So you know, actually, when uh, you know, I'm trained in economics. When I start thinking about economic analysis of a new topic like mine action, I, I, I muddle my way down to what are the underlying values here? It's not about money. It's about underlying values. And then one way of analyzing those underlying values is to put them in financial terms, which everybody understands. But we're really analyzing the relative importance of these underlying values. So the underlying value is ensuring that no innocent civilians are at risk from anti-personnel landmines. Adhering to that value means we don't have to clear the mountaintops of Afghanistan. And we can set a more useful and concrete objective and still stay true to the spirit of the Ottawa Convention. Well, thank you, Ted. That's probably the most clear-headed and realistic analysis I've heard of a way to meet the 2025 goal, as well as the strategy behind uh, the choices made when deciding which uh, minefields to actually focus on. I really appreciate that. Thanks for coming on the dif- on the diffuser. I, do you have any final words? Um, next year is an important year. It's the 20 years uh, 20th anniversary of the anti-personnel mine ban treaty coming into force. And I would uh, seek to encourage the Canadian government and other mine action actors to have um, some um, public, you know, events, and but as well to engage more more coherently and strategically along the lines I, I said. And uh, next year will be an, an important one. Well, at the Canadian Landmine Foundation, that's a big part of our mandate as well. So we're looking forward to uh, doing some of that convincing next year and <laughs> definitely hope that Canada becomes more involved. Fabulous. Good. We're on site. <laughs> well, have a wonderful day and thanks for coming on the Diffuser. Yeah, Appreciate thanks it. Thanks very much, Paul. <laughs>